0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a super radical and self-reliant life. I'm keeping this real brief because I'm going on vacation. By the time you hear this, I will be up and about traveling around and I won't have a chance to publish, but I did not want to wait a week before getting this episode to you. I'm speaking today with one of my heroes, and I don't throw that term around lightly. His name is Will Bonsall. He is one of the most remarkable human beings I have ever come across. He's the author, most recently, of Will Bonsall's Essential Guide to Radical Self-Reliant Gardening, which sounds like the sort of thing that only a very fringe group of people would be interested in, but it's not. Uh, His original title, before the marketers got hold of it, was Gardening Without Borders, And it really speaks to what we need to do as human beings to ensure our food supply and ensure our survival as a species. I can't think of anything bigger or more important than that. He's also the founder of the Scatterseed Project. And I'd like you to, if you can, get to a YouTube right now. If you want to pause this and just watch this like four minute video, and the link I'll give you is plantyourself.com slash scatter seed. That's all one word. S-C-A-T-T-E-R-S-E-E-D. PlantYourself.com slash scatter seed and you'll get a sense of why I think Will and his work are so absolutely important. So I was thrilled that he agreed to be on the podcast. He is a veganic gardener, but he's not veganic out of ethical conviction as much as the common sense and the economics of it. And he argues that if we are trying to change the world by imposing our ethics on people, we're going to have a much harder time than if we just show them that the way we want them to do things is in their own economic self-interest. And that's what he does very convincingly in his book and in this podcast interview. So this is one I hope folks will share widely because the information contained herein really can save the human race from extinction. So without further ado, Will Bonsall, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast.
1: Hi, Howard. It's good to be here. Greetings to everyone.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to begin by just asking you to kind of tell us your story. And this is actually our our second time at recording. I had some technical difficulties, and I realized as I was biking from my little shed to a different office, that the reason I wanted you to tell that story in particular is that your concepts and ideas and the things you put together – just seemed to me so creative they they're so far beyond anything that I've thought about these topics that I've thought about for a long time that I just I kind of was really interested in like what were the influences that that allowed you to to see things from such a broad perspective so you know, what t- tell us how you got to where you are now
1: well yeah incidentally that's that does tend to be how I think for better or worse they tend to be a very Big picture, visionary sort of thing. Not so good in the nuts and bolts and details, and and linking them together is often a problem for me. But yeah, um, well, when I first uh, when I was a teenager and first left home to um, for for working away from home, my first uh, job was in the mining business. I worked for a couple of mining companies, uh, prospecting for copper and lead and zinc and so on. And uh, I got pretty, got got old pretty fast. I got decided what I didn't want anything to do with it, and. Um, I decided I was more interested in something that involved more recycling and uh, was a little more sustainable. And, of course, uh, at that time, um, organic was becoming a, a, a big thing. And so I got into that. And when I, as I got into it, I started hearing people talking a lot about how many tons per acre you needed of phosphate and green sand and selpo mag and, and the lime and all these kinds of things. And I had to ask myself, I thought I'd get out of that business. And uh, what, how organic, how sustainable was a any kind of a system, food system or anything, which constantly relied on these uh, outsiders and outside the inputs, and uh, especially things that required a huge carbon footprint. Of course, we didn't talk about that then, but uh, just took an awful lot of energy to move stuff around. That wasn't what I was looking for. So I started asking the kind of questions, like you say, that most of us don't even ask. And one thing that helped me, too, is... For better or worse, when I first got into organic farming, I didn't get into market gardening. I dabbled with that and wasn't very good at it, frankly. But um, growing stuff for my own, myself, my own use, was my focus. And because of that, that, that enabled me, in fact, forced me to ask the kind of questions that one doesn't necessarily ask or even recognize to ask uh, about organic systems. If you're, if you're growing stuff to sell, then if the dollar's in, dollar's out, matches okay then you say you're doing fine but in fact there are lots of things where some a lot of things which are make economic sense but don't make ecological sense and when i was dealing with the whole circle things going round and round uh... any kind of deficits you, you couldn't ignore them they they showed up so that helped me an awful lot in my thinking i think if i had been successful as a market gardener i'd have been a failure as a uh, whatever i am an agricultural philosopher or something whatever <laughs>
0: Great. So so um, I, you came to my attention through uh, through your book about um, you know Will Bonsall's essential guide to radical, self-reliant gardening. And I know that you're in, in a in a blog post before the book was published. The working title was Gardens Without Borders. So yeah. I, I wonder if you could like what, what do you mean by gardens without borders? Because I have I have a garden in my backyard. It's about a half to three quarters of an acre. And it's got a fence all around it. And, like, how, how, you know, how, how do I think of that piece of land and the, the inputs and outputs as something without borders?
1: Well, that's exactly. You've, you've hit right on it when you talk about your three quarters and a fence around it and so on. The very first chapter of the book, which is why I originally titled it that, then the, the uh, publisher decided for some good reasons that it wasn't clear enough uh, what it was about until too late. Um, then they came up with this other suggestion, which i don 't like at all well, but their their reasoning was was right on um, The very first uh, tra- uh, paragraph of the book I point out that when you look at when you look beyond the edges of your garden, like I assure you you 're seeing a mirage. you think that sense there is the boundary of it, but everything everything is connected to everything else, and your garden is much, if not more than most things. Um, the stuff that you bring into your garden to fertilize it, what you do with the food that comes out of it, and on and on. The whole thing is part of a whole... Basically, your garden is the center of a little pebble dropping in the water. that The ripples just keep going out uh, bigger and bigger and bouncing back and so on. And it's like everything. It's like light, sound, energy, or any, any kind of thing in the universe is, is all integrated. And so to ignore that is at great risk of, particularly if we are uh, to um, presume or to say that this thing that we're doing is organic. The very definition of organic is something for all the parts functioning together as in an organism and um, as, as a, an integrated um, unit. And if they don't do that, if these separate little pieces come in and out, then we have to really question whether this is really organic gardening. Um, what I often refer to, um, kind of facetiously, to, to more conventional gardening farming uh, including organic farming, is it, sometimes it's cake mix farming or cake mix gardening, where you bring in some of this from there and something from there, and it all comes from somewhere else. You put it in your garden, you stir it, and out comes some zucchini or some potatoes or whatever, and that goes away somewhere. Um, it's not very organic. Um, a, a real a real organic food system, like an organic and sustainable life, an organic sustainable civilization, and so on, should should always be looking at the bottom line. Should always be reckoning. What are all of the inputs? Don't ignore the externalities. And unless you do that, until you do it, you're not really being uh, organic, and you're certainly not being sustainable.
0: Okay. So what, one of the things you say a lot, and, and I got a lot of this from this, this wonderful uh, YouTube video of a workshop you gave, I guess for, for Amy Hamlin, uh, who's been on this podcast a couple times, on, on veganic uh, farming and gardening and one of the things you say a lot in that talk is people are coming up with the right answers to the wrong questions yeah and and one of the reasons i love your work is that you build a bridge between two worlds that i love and that kind of are always fighting with each other the vegan world Mm -hmm. and the per and the permaculture world and and right on and I live in both worlds, and whoever I'm with ends up sort of making sense. But when you when – so what are, what are the wrong questions that each of these different yeah. worlds is is um, asking? Maybe we, we need to define – for this audience, at least, we need to define permaculture a little bit because they're much more familiar with vegan.
1: Well, that's a really, really good point. And that, that was, by the way, um, perhaps the first, one of the f- few or only uh, – presentations, events that I've done, the one in Ithaca, New York, where the audience was primarily um, vegan, not primarily organic. In other words, where they were coming from, and they were very interested in what I had to say about combining the two, because, yes, uh, to the detriment of both movements, um, they're often seen as being, if if anything, um, mutually exclusive, or, you know, like organic, it's all about common, right? How else can you fertilize things without the animals are somehow essential to the system? And uh, Mother Nature farms with animals, and so all of which are true and total lies at the same time, and very, very misleading. So, um, yeah, I'm trying more and more to speak to the veganic um, movement, the organic. Most of what I have to say that the organic people already get, and I'm telling them they're very happy to hear it because it's kind of like, gee, I always thought that, but I wondered, and so I'm kind of confirming some of their own uh, doubts and giving them some alternative ways of dealing with it. The veganic people, uh, for the most part, vegetarians and vegans are not that connected with the, with the earth. They tend to be urbanites, suburbanites, have conventional jobs. And if they have gardens at all, um, the connection does not hit them quite as hard. For one thing, most people that are into veganism and, and vegetarianism are primarily into the compassion um, ethic, which is totally great. I'm all about that. It's wonderful. But they there's a... Um, I I suggest there is an even more profound motive or rationale which drives both of those, and it doesn't rely on the uh, bunny-hugging mentality. Um, It is the very fact of the... Well, the word that I've uh, coined for this, I believe, is eco-efficiency. In other words, whether there is a profound practicality to the way that we produce food. And on the one hand, if we are... Uh, producing our food with all these in animal inputs, um, whether we ourselves are keeping or eating animals or not. If if we're relying on animals to maintain the system, then we're not being very efficient, and I'll get back to that point. But it basically has to do with the uh, uh, food energy chart that we all had on our um, the pyramid that we had in our high school biology books, or whatever. Um, so that's not the best way of maintaining, and certainly not building soils with
0: right. animals. So, 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 what you're saying is that that, that someone who who's an ethical vegan, or even a health vegan, or for, for whatever reason, and they they view themselves as doing the right thing because they are not consuming animals as sort of first order consumers, they're still consuming, they're still contributing to animal agriculture. Either sure. through subsidies or through the way their crops are grown, that I think one of the things you said was like you can't if if you're if you're just having sort of conventional vegan food, yeah. you're still supporting animal agriculture. Can you explain how that works?
1: Well, for one thing, uh, virtually all of the organic uh, food on the market is largely uh, produced with animal manure. So that if we want to feel self righteous about um, the fact that we're you know are Tofu is, uh, you know, is, doesn't contain any animal products. In a sense, it contains lots of animal products, and totally relies on someone else keeping animals and castrating them and uh, weaning them prematurely and uh, butchering them and so on. Um, you, the blood is on our food just as much as theirs. In fact, uh, the tofu is an excellent example. About the only reason that the tofu is as affordable as it is is because the okara, the pulp, the leftover, um, most operations, it's it's uh, fed to pigs or cattle or whatever. So. Uh, you're not eating the animal. You're not. Your hand didn't wield the knife, but you supported the one that did. It, it happened. You're you're an enabler here, and this kind of thing. Uh, our lives are fraught with those kind of hypocrisies and inconsistencies. And about the only way to really resolve them in anything, even even partially, is to look at the inputs. And again, it's hard to do when your food comes from the from the grocery store or the health food co-op or whatever. Uh, to know where the stuff all the inputs involved in it are. Uh, again, that's why I had the great advantage when I started off of not being very good at market gardening, but basically focusing on producing stuff from my, from my own use, from my family's use. And it became so patently obvious from the very beginning uh, what worked and what didn't work. A market gardener doesn't necessarily see those because a market gardener basically sees uh, s- spend some money out to get certain things and get some money back from selling food and if those numbers line up okay then okay this is a viable business um, but in fact we know that there are a lot of things which are economically viable which are not ecologically viable that's especially true because the um, ocean of petroleum that underlies our whole civilization uh, skews all of the facts all, all of the um, calculating that we think we do is blown out of the water by that so My system, uh, it allowed me to have a certain wisdom which would have probably been denied me if I'd been buying and selling uh, Mm -hmm. stuff. And and if anything was not viable ecologically, it hit me in the head. I couldn't miss it. I was dealing with the entire circle, round and round. The stuff went back into the soil and so on. Anything that worked was very obvious. Anything that didn't work was equally obvious.
0: Uh Sort of of if you uh, have a garbage service that comes and the trucks take your stuff away, There's, there's something called a way. If you had to keep it all on your land, you would understand a great deal more about what biodegrades and what doesn't.
1: Well, you hit it right there, is the, the realization that there's no such thing as a way. The stuff that comes from away and goes away, it does not, it's, all, it's all integrated. And as we said in our comments before, um, the idea behind um, gardening without borders, um, there is no way. You have, to, you have to deal with all of those Whatever you think is the bottom line, there's another one below it, right. and you gotta keep, keep, keep that in your accounting.
0: Right. So, so far, we've bummed out the vegans who, who are no longer able to, to maintain an attitude of, of purity, but the book is mostly about... Well,
1: hopefully, hopefully, at the same time, we've also enabled them, uh, given well, we, that there is a vision, there is a way of doing it. Um, that is sustainable and is truly vegan and so on, and in fact just happens to be a whole lot more efficient and practical than the other way of doing it. So, yeah, it's good to you you don't make any progress with a problem until you recognize that there's a problem.
0: Right, right. And that was a tease, because I want them to keep listening, because there, there are solutions that are, that are just beautiful. Um, but I want to give equal time to the permaculturalists, who, whom I discovered many years after I went plant-based. And all of a sudden, the permaculturalists just seem to be making much more sense to me, about their, their you know, and, and so many of these concepts are just so beautiful around slow flow and completing the circles and, and um, stacked use and just, you know, the, the elegance and cleverness and this idea of a sustainable agriculture and a sustainable civilization. And so when I started reading about those, I thought, well, gee, I need a cow, I'm going to need chickens, you know. It, it, it started. It started eroding some of the philosophical underpinnings of my veganism, of my plant-based attitude. And yet, you, your vision of per, of 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 um, radical self-reliant gardening, takes the permaculturalists to task as well for for making some unfounded assumptions, or maybe just doing. You know sloppy math can you can you talk about like the vision of permaculture and how they're not living up to the, yeah. the eco efficiency
1: i I could hardly say it better than you just did, but I'll try to because um ver- the basic concept underlying permaculture is so right on all those things it's such an elegant uh, even in more ways than you mentioned, for example, the idea of growing crops without disturbing the soil that's wow, what's wrong with that that's great and uh, and of having a lot of food coming from plants which you mainly prune and mulch and chip and things like that, you know, you don't ever have to actually dig them and you, know, you don't have to uh, do an ecocide to the, to the ecosystem and start from scratch every time. Insofar as that works, that's fantastic. The problem with it is um, most of the foods which the permaculturalists have come up with for being suitable for permaculture, again, are not as they are now. Directly usable uh, as, as sources of plant food for humans as they are now, and so the thing they instinctively come up with because we're looking back at our traditional society: oh, we run some hogs in there to eat those acorns. If we feed this thing to some chickens and the pigs and so on, and it, although in fact uh, generations of of um, um, extension, uh, far, uh, farm extension agents have trying to convince uh, farmers to uh, keep the livestock out of the bloody woods. You know, that's, that's terrible for both and. Uh, so they 're undoing a huge part of the advantage that they get because, in fact, every time you go to a different uh, level of consumption like going back to the food energy pyramid, you have very roughly um, a ninety percent waste a loss every time you give, you recoup maybe ten percent of it so so
0: so, so let's let's uh, I don't, we, we don 't have a picture in front of us, but uh, yeah. So basically there's the, the bottom of the pyramid is the producers of energy, anything with, uh, that can photosynthesize?
1: You heard it, right? Anything with chlorophyll, which we don't have. So we're not producers, however productive we may think we are. We are parasites on the, eco, on the earth. We are consumers. That's okay. There's room for parasites and, cons- and consumers, so things have to be consumed as well as produced. But we are, at best, on the second tier of the pyramid. We're eating the plants. That's the best we mm-hmm. can do. Right. It could do so a lot we worse. It could be a lot worse. We could be eating animals that eat the animals that eat the plants and so on. But that's the best we can do. And, and right. so, so you're what, saying
0: at, e- at each level of that, there's a, ten, there's a 90% loss, waste yeah. of energy. So when we eat the plants, we're wasting 90% of the energy they've produced. When we eat the animals that eat the plants, if we're living on chickens and hogs and cows and sheep and goats, then we're, we're getting 1% of that energy that, instead of 10%. Exactly.
1: Those of course, very rough numbers, but people that have studied the, these, uh, tropic, the levels of of, of life of, of, uh, organic life have come up with very general numbers in the order of 10%. Some things are more efficient than others. So, so given that, we'd be better to eat directly from the plant. Insofar as we can do that, that takes away any objection that there's nothing negative to say about the permaculture thing. It's all good. But again, that would limit our diet a huge amount. A lot of the things that we feed to animals, we can't eat directly ourselves. And so there are a couple ways of dealing with that. One, which is very problematic but has enormous long-term potential, is if we were to take some of these uh, cool and niche um, exotic-seeming plants that the uh, permaculturalists uh, make so much of and breed them, select them for many generations, so those particular nuts or berries or leaves or whatever were edible for humans. After all, it took many, many centuries to get, domesticate wheat, cultivated wheat from wild wheat, and it would take many times that to do it with uh, most uh, permaculture, most most uh, woody um, trees and shrubs and so on, just because they have much longer reproductive cycle. Um, but still, um, doing it could be enormously profitable in the long run. We could come up with things like, oh, um, uh, well, acorns would be a, an excellent line of pursuit. Come up with acorns which are more productive and more uh, uh, lower in tannin or whatever have, have better... Edible, and so that they there was a place for them on our plates, not just as um, jellies and condiments, you know, wine and the you know, things that we do at a lot of tree crops now. But so they were the entree; they were the thing in the middle of the, you know, where the roast is, where the lamb would be, and in the middle of the table. Um, right,
0: and, and you're you're basically, you're basically talking about calories. Right, because there's like the big the so, big problem. The big uh, problem is like I my vegetable garden. Until I read your book, I was growing almost no calories. I was growing desserts, you know, berries, and I was growing nutrients, you know, leafy yeah. greens. Very important
1: nutrients. Very important nutrients. I would point out, but yeah, very little. Uh, not just calories, but particularly in the form of proteins, fat, starches, and so on, carbohydrates. Yeah, most of our garden things, except maybe potatoes. Um, are, are, are mainly succulent. Um, they're what I call aid species, uh, which maybe we'll get to discuss later. But they're 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 not very eco efficient plants, relatively speaking. And they don't. Get, we basically go to the grocery store to get our, our bread and our um, peanut butter, and you know the, the the fats and the proteins come from somewhere else. And in my case, they don't, because I'm aiming to be as sufficient, self-sufficient as I can, not completely by any means, but I, I therefore, my, my garden also includes soybeans and barley and wheat and sunflowers and so on. And, um, and yes, so most gardens do not contain those in them. And as such, that, that's perhaps one of the differences between a garden and a farm, um, is a garden we don't expect necessarily to produce the staple foods. A farm, more likely we do look at them that way. Um, so, um, did, I, did we finish that last point you were making? I'm not sure we did. Uh,
0: yes, yeah, so the, the, the permaculture ethos that runs all those animals through to kind of be middlemen middle or middle pigs between the, the chlorophyll sources that humans can't eat or we find really unpalatable, yeah. like that's one solution.
1: To, okay, and then there's a the second one. Thank you. That was, that was the point I was hitting for. One is to simply take those same crops... And spend the time it takes, which will be many centuries of sustained breeding effort, um, to make those some some quicker than others. Like, for example, the people at the uh, Land Institute in in Kansas have been working at trying to come up with perennial, not necessarily tree crops, but perennial wheats and perennial legumes and stuff. And again, that's in that same direction. Um, I shudder to think of what agribiz will do with those. Thing, that technology when they're able to co-opt it, but the potential of it, the way they're trying to do it at the Land Institute is nothing but uh, nothing but good. Um, and if we could do that with tree crops, if there was some way with modern genetic knowledge, we could speed it up. Perhaps um, that's one way of getting these things, so we can eat from the forest directly without having to send pigs and cattle in there. The other way, um, which I'm doing very much now, is indirectly. Um, Instead of eating directly from the forest, eating indirectly from the forest, in the sense of we have to use some kind of organic matter, and uh, preferably not animal manure, but let's say plant matter, compost, mulches, or whatever, to build the soil and sustain the soil. And... We can use uh make compost from our garbage and all the you know industrial residues and uh cannery waste and the grass clippings and all that kind of stuff that's all great, but to get the amounts we need to to sustain the system we need we need vast amounts we need tonnage and to not just to maintain soil fertility but actually to build it because where we've got it at even with organic uh, farming is we've taken it back from what it naturally was as natural forest or grassland. We've reduced it. We've more or less destroyed it. We need to not just maintain the fertility. We need to rebuild it back toward that.
0: So when, and, you, say, when you say fertility, what, can, you, can you define that or, yeah, that's or help a real us? Good
1: point. That's a real good point because it means several things. The main thing I'm talking about, and I'm obsessing over, is humus. Fertility, well, typically people mean nitrogen. Uh, but all the minerals and all the things that make soil uh, a convivial habitat for living things whether it be uh, uh, soybeans or centipedes or human beings, um, need stuff from the soil. We all come from the dirt, from the soil. And so where that comes from, how it gets there, some of it's already there, but if you've been taking it away for generations in the form of stuff going to market, then, well, what to do? So anyway, um, my point, uh, in this particular case, I'm, I'm saying if we were to use stuff from the land to build the land, from nearby land, not from thousands of miles away, for example, uh, you talked about your, your garden, three-quarters of an acre or so. Around it is either lawn or hayfield. Well, the stuff from that lawn or hayfield could be and should be going into the garden, should be built in the garden. Much more so, to carry it a little further direction, getting toward the permaculture thing, is as wonderful as grassland, prairie, lawn, or whatever is for producing surplus biomass, build and cultivate, to to, uh, nourish our crops, our cultivated land. Far better than that are forests, particularly uh, uh, Climax, uh, mixed hardwood forests. Um, They produce vast amounts of stuff in proportion to what they themselves need, particularly we're thinking of like tree leaves, but also eventually they chipped up the brush, the twigs, all the stuff from it. And so insofar as we can use that, to fertilize our cropland, then we have a real and real no-brainer here. We have a system which is very, very sustainable, very eco-efficient. I'm doing that as much as I can now, um, using the, frankly, uh, leaves and raymill chips are the mainstay. They, they are the they are what runs my farm. Um, you could take away uh, my chainsaw, my lots of other things, rototiller, but take away my chipper shredder, and uh, I would be very hard pressed to, to farm. Have to find some <laughs> other way, of same thing. So, right. so so, so saying, I want to...
0: Therefore, yeah, therefore, wanna...
1: therefore, indirectly, uh, if I'm not eating directly from the forest, I am indirectly because I'm using the stuff from the forest to feed the crops that will end up on my table.
0: Right. So now, what, one of the challenges in talking to you is that I have to admit, I was planning on reading your, your novel, From the Eyes of a Stranger, and yes. I, I didn't get to it because I'm going through the first book so slowly because... <laughs> 25. There's not a, there, there's not a page where I can't I don't I, I don't have to take like ten pages of notes and think about what you've said because it's so rich in the details mm-hmm. um, and so I'm going to recommend to anyone who gardens or farms or cares about it to 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 get the book but I I, I want to begin with the assumption that people may need the the big picture stuff um, so so just when you're talking about fertility. Like one of the points you make is that when anyone goes to their – anyone who who sells anything from their garden or their farm is essentially eroding the fertility. If I go to my garden and I pick a tomato and I give it to a friend, I've just removed fertility from the garden and I haven't put anything back in. And if I keep doing that, it's eventually going to become sterile or it's going to die or it's going to produce very poorly. So I have to continually put inputs back in. To any, to any sort of agricultural. And well,
1: so in any existing kind of agriculture, you have to basically uh, import those from somewhere else, mined or whatever. Um, and, the pre, and the problem with that, see, originally mankind had a link with the soil. We were part of a cycle. And up until a cent- couple centuries ago, um, if you ate that tomato and you went to the bathroom and you pooped out the, what was left of that tomato, minus the energy your body used to live and so forth, um, even if you lived in town, there would be some farmer from out in the country, out in the edge of town, that would come in and people whose job was to empty out the, the toilets and the, and the latrines and stuff. It would be composted, it would go back to the land. And therefore, we had a, a sustainable system, a completely, it didn't necessarily go back to the land which begot it, but more or less. Ever since the invention of the marvelous uh, flush toilet, we basically severed that connection. Something that, that you eat. Uh, Goes into the bathroom. Uh, Yes, uh, nowadays at least, uh, ideally it goes to a sewage treatment plant. But that sewage sludge is not organic. If it could be, if it could be, it would go back on the soil. That'd be great. But in fact, it ends up being mixed with um, the oil runoff from the pavement of the town, um, antibiotics that someone flushed down, whatever, all the chemicals and things that went in with it. So it's not useful. So, at best, it typically ends up being used on a golf course, or some of it actually gets composted for the sake of taking up less space in the, uh, in the landfill. So it's, it's, we have not solved the problem with that. Uh, that is not a solution. Um, so given that, yeah, we have to find some other way. There are some ways we can minimize that problem. Um, if a farmer, for example, uh, does not have access to the manure that its food generated, um, and would like to minimize bringing minerals in from somewhere else. Um, that's another very, very important aspect of permaculture and of the trees. The tree roots, big old hardwood trees especially, they, their roots reach down, uh, in some cases, dozens of feet uh, the, into the subsoil, into a place which otherwise would not be part of the biosphere. It's just, in my area, it's where the glacier dropped them. And those minerals are right there and would never ever end up uh, in a cabbage on my plate if it weren't for the trees that pump up those minerals. And it can do it fairly sustainably. If there's such a thing as sustainable mining, if that's not a complete oxymoron, I would suggest that that would be a large hardwood tree, which not only reaches down, brings up the minerals that are there, but actually they exude um, chemicals or what exudates from their roots, which further break down, etch the soil particles that are still there. In other words, eat the rocks and bring Mm -hmm. those particles up to where they eventually end up on my plate and in my body. So that's, that's not a complete panacea, but that's, uh, that does, goes a long way toward making up for those crops that you send off to the market. Mm-hmm. I
0: Sorry. always
1: maintain there, there are two forms of fertility, uh, two, excuse me, two forms of erosion. The one that we all think about is, you know, stuff leaching away or blowing away or, you know, washing away with water. But the second major form of erosion, and perhaps the biggest one, is the marketplace. And we don't think of the marketplace as that's what we're doing it for. You know, how can we call that form of erosion? But it is just as absolutely as as the uh, leaching away of minerals,
0: right? And and the, one of the, the you know the key factors there is this this uh, invisible externalities. So that, you know, so we decided we were going to do a little chicken sanctuary. We're going to rescue, you know, old birds from from local farmers where they had stopped laying enough to justify their feed. And we thought, well, you know, they'll eat the ticks and they'll be helpful. And then, you know, we can sell the eggs to pay for the feed. And like, you know, it's not like totally kosher vegan, but they're living out their lives pretty well. But then like buying the feed, like it's ten dollars to buy a 50 pound bag of Of scratch or grain feed it's only, you know it 's almost negli- it 's negligible it 's almost nothing but I've, since I read your book, I was thinking, well, how many acres would it take me right. if right. I was growing that so that feed has to be growing somewhere so that was when I really started understanding this idea of the garden without borders is it my how garden has to it's
1: extend. It's occupying the land it grew on, it's also occupying the petroleum that uh, fueled the tractor that ran and so on and so forth, everything uh, all, all the way from the farm to the marketplace to your, uh, your to your chicken sanctuary. to a, um, huge carbon footprint all the way just to keep those birds alive and one of the things that bothers me about that all these places where we keep old downer cattle and stuff, um, yeah what's, what's in the heart behind it may be great but there's often a huge amount of hypocrisy um, in it. Sometimes we're, we're contributing Um, to, uh, well, to the problems. Making a place for these things to go um, takes the pressure off. What we really need to do is be shutting them down altogether. And, of course, that means you've got to convince everyone else in the world to stop buying and eating them.
0: Right. Um, So let's let's talk for a, a little bit about what your form of veganic gardening looks like. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it because there are so many details and people can get them all in your book and in this YouTube video. Um, but just to kind of give give a picture and especially for folks, you know, so I have a fair amount of land. I'm on six acres. About two thirds of it is it's not old growth, but it's, um, you know, it's woods um, so I can do a bunch of things, but I'm also thinking about listeners who maybe have a suburban plot, and they're obviously not going to be able to become radically self-sufficient. So what, what, are, so what does it look like to be uh, doing self-reliant gardening, eco-efficient as possible, at any level, whether it's you know your 85 acres or my six or someone else's you know, 20 by 20?
1: Well, of course, with my 85 acres or so, most of that's forest. So the area I'm actually cultivating is um, oh, well, for my own use, it's perhaps an acre and a half, if that. Um, so it's a lot less than your six. Um, but the key, my key strategy in all that is intensive methods and having things crowded, uh, things in beds, not raised beds, which I hate, but in intensively spaced beds, wide, wide road beds. Um, and also using the vertical dimension a lot, um, having things climbing up, growing supported trellis a lot which allows me to get a lot more out of a space. But the basic uh, idea behind that, I remember many years ago, my dad, who did have a little lot in, in town, uh, he was looking at what I was doing and said, how can it make sense for you? You've got acres here. You've got all the land you need. Why would you go to all the trouble of crowding these things together? And here's where your, your urban suburbanites come in. It's not just space that your crops take to grow. They also take water, labor, fertility. There's a lot of inputs that go into them. And if you could put those same amount of inputs into a fourth of the amount of space and still get the same amount of food, why doesn't that make sense? Particularly in my case, since every acre I plow up to put crops in is an acre that's not producing hay and so forth to feed the crops. So I want to keep a fairly high proportion of my land not in cultivated crops, but in stuff to feed the cultivated crops. Um, so that, and like I say, the, the three-dimensional element uh, works with some things. Uh, companion cropping allows me to put certain things closer together than they would have if they were, um, by themselves. Um, but the one point I would would point out, by the way, um, I, am not completely a bunny hugger. I'm totally into the compassion thing. Uh, uh, I don't want to be hypocritical about it, but I do kill animals. I kill lots and lots of potato bugs and, uh, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of bugs that I kill. Um, when I can, I always prefer as much as possible to, uh, exclude. If I can, Um, sometimes people feel really fine about uh, squashing bugs or something, but would be horrified at the idea of shooting a deer because of those cute little bambi eyes and so forth. Well, I do either one if I have to, but as much as possible, I do neither of them. So um, I've killed killed several deer in my life, even though I don't eat any of them. I don't value them as food, but I do value the food that they were stealing from me. Um, But uh, I go to much greater extents nowadays as much as I can to simply keep them out by electric fencing and things like that. But even when it comes to a slug or whatever, something like that, it's still a sentient being, I assume, never asked it. But anything I can do to avoid killing it, I try to do anything reasonable. So uh, I'm not as obsessive about the uh, uh, avoidance of bloodshed, but I do everything I can. But what I can do overall, I can, I can avoid far less violence, not only killing, but simply, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, basically rob, forcing out animals out of a habitat by simply using less space, which, first of all, veganism itself does that to a huge extent, but then even further by intensive food production. So I, there's a whole lot of land out there that the animals can do whatever they want and interact, and I don't feel like I have to control them, certainly not kill them.
0: Yeah, it's one thing I've thought about with with vegans who are sort of extremely purist about you know we do no harm, and then when I see them sort of eating cupcakes or you know so sort of, like every every calorie you eat is robbing some Peter.
1: Well, that is true. Also, any time I've ever been to a uh, any meeting of vegans or, or, or uh, you know um, animal rights people or whatever. And uh, when you walk by their cars, uh, look at the windshield. It never fails, particularly if they're driving in the evening. They always <laughs> have stuff, dead things filled in. can't avoid it. You can't go down the road at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour without ending a substance of killing, transient, um, killing sentient beings. It's like this absurd thing that the the Jains, apparently, in India, have a tradition. If a Jain goes out at night, uh, I guess maybe a priest or something, for one thing, they generally don't go out at night because you might step on a bud in the dark. But some of them are so, again, so pure and purist and self-righteous that they'll have a servant go ahead with a, sweeping the walk in front of them so they don't actually step on something. Well, they don't actually step on something, but I have a feeling i see an awful lot more little cooties and bugs and stuff that get, get wiped out by that broom. So uh, yes. I, I just, yeah, I, it's, 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 it's really good to be careful of straining gnats and swallowing camels. It's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> we have to keep an eye on the whole picture.
0: Right, and I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure that um, cars run on dead dinosaurs, which is
1: uh... Uh, all the vehicles. That's that's another thing that I try to. Although those are already dead dinosaurs, so I'm not worried about the harm to the dinosaur. But I am worried about the sustainability of it. Uh, mm-hmm. That's one of the points I make in my book and and in, on my talks is um, if we're not only trying to be not invasive to plants, but also trying to have a system which overall is sustainable, then we should not be running all of our equipment, should not be running off and burning dinosaur farts, which basically it is. When we use black plastic mulch, all of those things are made of dinosaur farts, and it doesn't grow on my land. So that's another thing is to try to find solutions, workable, practical solutions, affordable, doable solutions, but which do not involve um, dinosaur farts or killing creatures unnecessarily, or wasting space. There's quite a few hoops we're trying to jump through here, and we're we're kidding ourselves if we think we're going to be so pure. Inevitably, the few people I've known who try to be some very high level of purity uh, typically end up wimping out altogether and going back to doing something whatever much much worse. You always got to right. do what do what you can do, and there's the saying of "Don't let the ideal be the enemy of the good." That certainly is true.
0: Right, and you know, in, in this in this day and age, in this political climate particularly, which, you know, has nothing to do with biology or farming or ecosystems. There's, you know, I'm talking to a lot of people who have very different ideas about progress, whether, you know, from whether, you know, Hillary is better than Trump, or we should have gone for Bernie, or Bernie was too much, or or any, any of that stuff, or should we even be supporting capitalism? And I kind of get dizzy in the midst of all the conversations, but I love the way you talk about it based on natural systems and biology that we're we're really that
1: Let's stick this in with, a second and then continue the thought. I would take great exception to the very first statement that you said that all this politics has nothing to do with gardening and all that kind of stuff. It has everything to do with it. Um, everything about the way our larger society goes. It may not seem to have much to do with your three quarter acre backyard garden, but it has everything to do with the overall a system, because we have to look at not just uh, sustainable farming, but sustainable military defense, sustainable education, sustainable health care So all of these things very, very have everything to do with Donald and Hillary and Bernie and so on. Sure. So that they're, they're, uh, that's that's where it all sits. In fact, uh, a point I'm making in my book is not only those politicians, but the Pope and the CEO of General Motors or All of those people are sitting right there in the middle of your garden. You got to deal with them. Sure.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. So oh, yeah. I, I meant it was kind of a a different topic, um, but maybe this maybe this is a good um, a good segue into Asperia, into the uh, okay. the car- currently fictional um, civilization that you write about in Through the Eyes of a Stranger. Can you can you talk about that your vision and how? It differs from what we have now because in listening to you describe it, and again I haven't I, I calling myself out I haven't read it, which I'm a little bit ashamed of, but in hearing you describe it in your talk, it's radically different from the way most of us could imagine civilization just because it's outside of, of what we know.
1: Uh, otherwise, of course, there'd been no point in my writing. Just another, another Ursula Le Guin story. In fact, hers is likewise. Uh, it, it, there's a vision, obviously, underlying it. In fact, that's one thing in this fictional land of Asperia. Uh, it's what you might almost say is their, is their religion. Is this thing they call the vision. They're keepers of the vision. And they, even though, in fact, they, my, my Asperians are, in fact, atheist-like, I am, um, they still have something you might call a religion. It is basically this, this a view of a sustainable society. And, uh, and it manifests itself in, in many details, every, in fact, every aspect of their lives. Um, you, you shouldn't be ashamed of not having read it, because for one thing, the, the book we are talking about before was uh, uh, quite a job just getting through that. But it would be helpful if you or your readers had had just to know uh, so it would be on the same page figuratively and literally. But basically, Asperia is a society which is, I keep emphasizing, not a utopia. People take exception to that, but it's not meant to be a utopia. Its main claim to fame is that it is sustainable. And a sustainable society can screw up, can do something very wrong, try again to get it right, get that wrong. Every, every solution begets problems and every problem begets solutions. This is the definition of life. This is the definition of evolution. So a society can evolve and live and thrive if it is sustainable. It can do some all kinds of very important things wrong, keep working to get it right, screwing up, working again to get it right a quote society if it is not uh, a, a uh, utopia if it is not sustainable uh in fact is doomed it doesn't matter how much they get right or wrong Um, If if our current society, for example, if we had totally resolved uh, issues of gender uh, equity and racial harmony and all these things, even if we had totally, which of course we haven't, even if we had totally resolved those, as long as we are not sustainable, then we are, as someone described it, as rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic. Unless we deal with that iceberg straight ahead of us, uh, you can worry a lot about the poor people down in steerage that aren't getting good enough air and good enough food. We're all going to be in the bottom in an hour anyway. So we've really got to, uh, not that we can't deal with all of these issues at the same time. They are all totally linked to our garden. But we have to really look at the the big one that underlays everything is, are we sustainable? Can we buy ourselves time to keep navigating, keep looking for new passages through the ice?
0: Right, and I love that, um, that, uh, that definition of life and evolution, of every solution be getting new problems and every problem be getting new solutions. I think for the first time I understand kind of Hegel's dialectic, like, this is, like, it's okay to screw up as long as we're navigating towards sustainability and we have processes to try again and do better. So the, so the sustainability kind of gives us the space to be, to be willing to try things that may not work as opposed to pretending that we have the answers when we don't.
1: Yeah, you need a context in order to screw up, and you need a context to and fix it up. Without the context, it doesn't matter. It's all mood. You know, it's all it's all over.
0: Okay. So, 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 what are some of the things that, uh, if a, you know, a visitor to Asperia would would be surprised by that that, that makes it sustainable?
1: Well, and and uh, okay, um, and I would point out that again, it's not a utopia. I've tried to make it clear to people. It is a unexample of a sustainable society. The Asperians themselves are the first to point out that there could be any number of other uh, things. Uh, one doesn't need to be an atheist to them. They happen to be for historic reasons or whatever. One doesn't have to be their vegan. You don't have to be vegan to be sustainable, although it helps to be um, or, or, Okay. Interestingly enough, um, and in book two, which is n- near completion there's a sequel to, to the Asperian story, um, one of the main assets uh, or advantages to their veganism is it enables them to have a very dense population on a given footprint of land, benignly, without without messing up the land. A lot of people can live a high quality lifestyle, and yet without destroying their land base. And this becomes particularly important in book two when they are. This is this is an example of sustainable defense. Um, in book two, they are invaded by this other society to the south. Um, which is not sustainable, which keeps on reaching out and, you know, is very imperialistic trying to take over other land because it needs it to feed its own population because it doesn't make good use of the land that it's got, has to keep taking more. Uh, At some point, they invade Asperia. And one of the things, the main defenses that the Asperians have is they have a very uh, high density of population in proportion to their borders and so on. And moreover, a population which are very healthy, very prosperous, having they're very rich in resources, and the people are very very loyal to their government. they know what they have they know what they stand to lose, so you don 't have any um, uh, treason is unthinkable for example you don 't have um, grudging people that are ready to turn to help the enemy um, but anyway the uh, so they are vegan um, they have a thing called the vine laws there um, which basically mandates a high level of self-reliance. In particular, there's a subset of the Vine Laws called the Staples Rule which mandates that every stead, which is to say household, that also incidentally, they don't have nuclear households like we do. A stead is like anywhere from 15 to 30 or 35 people um, some related families, parts of families, individuals living under one very large house, almost like a chateau, kind of a big thing. And uh, every one of those steads is mandated by the Staples rule of the Vine Laws, to be self-reliant for two things. Their staple foods, doesn't mean they can't buy in their cinnamon or their something or other, but their staple foods they're producing, which means fruit, oil seeds, starches, proteins, and so on, and also their domestic fuel. And so all their firewood or charcoal or lamp oil, all the things that they need for that, uh, are produced on the stead. Now, if some stead happens to have a, uh, let's say, a brickyard or something where they need lots and lots of fuel more than they themselves, they might bring that in from further afield. But it's it's all it's all a very elaborate um, body of legislation that basically determines at one what layer, what level each stead or, or uh, land area um, is to be self-reliant. Because of that, um, it's It has total impact on the map of this area. For example, there are no areas, there's no industrial zone, there's no um, rust belt or whatever. Uh, um, There are industries all over the place. There are many paper mills, most of which are not much bigger than my house. There's uh, three or four bicycle factories, um, all kinds of manufacturing all over the country. But it's not centered in certain areas. It tends to be scattered all over. There's no grain belt. Grain is produced everywhere. Fruit is produced everywhere. And uh, and forests. The whole country is a patchwork quilt of various land uses, from industrial to to agricultural to forest, and so forth. Uh, that would look very different to us. There's no there are, because of the vine laws. There are no uh, population centers. It's a very densely populated country, but there are no urban areas. Um, the basic the the banner, which is the most equivalent we have to a town, um, the center of it is the banner house, which is sort of like the town office. But there's no Cluster of buildings around it there's no there's no uh, urban no urbanization at all, and again, it has to do with the vine laws. So they, they they can't very well be if each of these uh, households has to be responsible for their things so it's a very dispersed society and yet very dense those are the and things what, my mind offhand
0: yeah, and one of the things you point out and and you you point this out in in terms of our world as well as Asperia, is that the marketplace itself tends to enslave people and make them extremely um, insecure. So you talk about sort of the the soybean farmer or the the corn farmer in America who has no influence over the cost or quality of their inputs and no influence over how much someone's going to pay for their outputs. And then you talk about like the marketplace in Asperia where because people are self-sufficient, they are not in a position to be screwed
1: yeah it and, and to the degree that they're self-sufficient which is very high um, on the other hand people are manufacturing all kinds of things to sell I, incidentally officially the Asperian Hesperia, uh, economy is a barter-based economy the Asperian government does not produce any currency so it's sort of like if we for example um, no one's telling us we can't buy and sell things although we are mandated to be self-reliant for those basic things uh... if i want to manufacture typewriters no one's going to stop me from doing it um, and I can sell them to whomever wants to buy them or whoever I want to. Um, but because in a typical stead, will produce a number of things, uh, generally not food products for export because there's not much demand for them, um, but uh, let's say industrial things um, and perhaps crafts and things like that. I guess that's also industrial. Um, I'm not – I want to sell them. But I'm not absolutely bound to my. I, I It's not a do or die seller, seller starve situation. So, therefore, if you try to offer me some enslaving price for my typewriters, you know, and if I can say, "Buzz off! I don't, I don't have to sell them." And conversely, if I've got something you want, um, there's a certain justice, uh, equity built into the whole system by the fact that we do not have to buy or sell those things to the degree that we don't. Therefore, it means. That you can demand and get a more fair price for what you 're buying, and you cannot have to pay a more than a fair price for what you're, i mean for what you 're selling for what you 're buying the degree to which you have to have it if you 're let 's say if you 're a, a manufacturer and you 're making knitting needles then and that 's the only thing you 've got and how many of those knitting needles can you use yourself so you have to sell them or starve if you 're growing corn or soybeans, you have to sell them or starve. you have no control over those things. Most, most farmers nowadays do not even produce any of their own vegetables. Um, it all comes from the store. Even though a farmer that grows wheat, his wife goes to the store and buys bread. So, um, we're, it, it, again, the, the marketplace, which could be a very liberating thing. I mean, I, I'm far from envisioning everyone staying in their own place. I mean, the marketplace and the forum, these are places where we share our civilization, where we make decisions, where we become wiser. We, uh, we should be mixing it up as much as possible, and including um, buying and selling things. It makes our lives richer in so many ways. It's the degree to which we are indebted or bonded, enslaved to that. That's where the problem begins.
0: Because right. when I think about sort of the, the, the history of how third world poverty came to be, it's largely a case of Western corporations coming in and with, with with the help of a, of an oligarchy in a country, stopping people from being self sufficient so now that you know these countries are producing tea or or cacao or coffee beans or bananas or pineapples that they can 't live on, but they have to sell it to the west and you know if they were self sufficient if they could grow their own food crops, they could as you know my my grandfather was a um, uh, a musician, and he used, he used to say, you know what the conductor can do with his baton if the, if the orchestra doesn't show up.
1: Right. <laughs> and also, like that. example of third world countries, let's say those countries that are now, let's say, producing pineapples for us, and they're having to buy everything else in from us at the price that we dictate, if they were more self-reliant for not just food, but for industrial things and so on, at least within their country, and ideally within their communities to some extent, um, within uh, the household, to the extent that they would, they would still grow pineapples to sell. And we would still buy pineapples from them. But we might pay a lot more for them, as perhaps we should. We, we're producing our own staple foods, but if we wanted these extra foods, as let's say treats or luxuries, then we would, we would pay for enough for them to make it worth their while, and vice versa.
0: Yeah, that, when I was um, in, in graduate school, I took a, a, a course on sort of international health, and my professor, Clara Hagner, posed this question to us one day that stumped me for years. She says, why are bananas cheaper per pound than apples? When apple I was living in, in New Jersey at the time, when apples were grown locally and bananas were shipped thousands of miles. Exactly. And it's, uh, it's, it's because of uh, power imbalances.
1: And along with that, did it? Exactly, and along with that goes, why are people in New Jersey so wealthy, and why are people in Honduras so so hungry and poor?
0: Right. Um, okay. So the, the last thing I want to talk to you about is, and we could go, you know, we could go on all day. And I would, I would love to just ask you all these questions about my garden. But uh, in, in in fairness to you and all the other listeners, <laughs> you are also you've also been involved in a project that to me is so inspiring and heroic and necessary that I, I, I hardly have words for. It. And that I'm, I'm referring to the Scatterseed Project. Could you talk about that and, and how you started and what it means to you and what it should mean to, to all of us to get involved?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, way back 30-something years ago, well, actually, way back when I first started gardening and farming, in fact, um, it actually grew out of, out of my obsession with self-reliance. I didn't want to just grow my own vegetables uh, or my own food, but I also wanted to produce the fertility for the food and also the seed for the food. I was determined if I was going to go to burpees, let's say, for some tomato seed, that was fine. But I didn't want to go back to them next year for the same variety I wanted to keep from year to year. And so I learned how to sa- save seeds not only of tomatoes but of basically any crop that if I was going to grow kohlrabi, If I was going to have kohlrabi in my diet, then I had to learn how to... Uh, save kohlrabi seeds, which is a little more uh, challenging. And so I gained experience in saving a whole lot of uh, seeds of a lot of whole kinds of things. Uh, but also, I, gradually I came to realize there are a lot of things that are not available off the shelf. Just for example, the old man that we worked at, uh, haying, a haying, the dairy farmer, uh, he had a very interesting kind of, um, he called it a lima bean. turned out it's actually a white runner bean he grew in his garden, and he'd been maintaining it for years and years. He also had a cowhorn potato, a local regional heirloom variety that he grew. And uh, that's when it first hit me. There's a lot of stuff out there that people have that's not in any catalog anywhere. It's not available off the shelf. And a lot of it I can get if I can access it, but I can only get it once. Once I get it, I've got to keep it going myself. So that's about the same time that I learned about the Seed Savers Exchange and became a very active member of that. And so I started a scatter seed project, which two-fold focus. One is to promote and teach uh, skills to people about uh, saving their own seeds, encourage them to, and teach them how to do so, but also maintaining varieties of things, many of which were rare or endangered. And so, yeah, I've had, uh, in the past, I've had, uh, I think, over 5,000 varieties of various crops, um, including beans and flax and grain and uh, vegetables and so on, that I've maintained and offered to people. Um, as of a few years ago, my scarcity project was more or less shut down, uh, because of some doings of an, the, another organization which basically uh, cut off funding and left me uh, high and dry so that the, some of the some of the things I have in my collection are lost. Um, some of them I'm struggling to keep going and some of them I'm in the process of getting re-obtaining. Um, basically uh, hoping to get some more sustainable source of funding year in, year out so that I can uh, do a better job of keeping these. But most of the stuff that I have and have lost is still in some other collection. Like some of them are varieties that... Um, or in the USDA collection, which I may have got from them, or they may have got from me. In which case, they're happy to repatriate them to me. So, okay. so that-
0: when, when I when I first heard about scatter seed and about saving seeds, I mm-hmm. thought that the implications were okay. I can save like thirty bucks a year by not going back to the catalogs, and maybe I can get some slightly different variety of bean. But once I started reading about it and and learning more, it feels like. It's sort of the you know- no, the noah's Ark of our civilization that that given our fragility in terms of population in terms of what we're doing to the environment and in terms of global climate destabilization that that these that the every variety that's lost is a, a huge risk, a huge danger to our future sustainability. Can you can you talk about the? Well, you're sort of right the, the, on with the, all of that
1: because the global implications of saving these seeds. Yeah. I mean, all the, all those things are, are totally valid. Uh, it's it, it's a totally good reason to grow your own seeds so you can save fifty bucks or whatever on your seed bill. Um, that's a great reason for doing it, um, and because there are certain things that are available. Um, for example, some of the things that I offer in my scatter project are not available anywhere. If you do get them from me, I don't want you to come back next year and get them again. I want you to know how to do it yourself. So in other words, it gives you access to like I say, a whole lot of neat things that you otherwise might not be able to. But yeah, in terms of the larger uh, situation, uh, we are in the last century or so, more than ever before, we are in a uh, uh, devastating trend of losing or abandoning our genetic heritage. Um, even though many new varieties are being bred, developed, and put on the market every year, um, they tend to not be sustainable. For one thing, most of them are F1 hybrids, which are not sustainable. You, you can't uh, save true seed from them year after year. Some of them are patented. Um, and even those that are, quote, new, typically just are reshufflings of the older ones. So we're actually losing some of the intrinsic diversity that we had before, not just number of varieties, but the actual germplasm, the, the gene pool content of those things, is uh, is being lost. So one of the objects of my project is, in fact, to, to do that. What I focus a lot on, even more than what people talk a lot about in the seed-saving community, is preserving uh, you know rare endangered varieties, which is obviously number one priority. Um, a lot of that's being well done. Some of it isn't, but some of that's already being well done. The thing that I focus an awful lot on is having these, as I say, on the shelf. Many of the varieties that I get, just for example, some varieties I get from the Department of Agriculture are not generally available to the general public. They don't want you using them as a the seed company. They're generally happy to deal with me because, for one thing, if I put something in my collection and I offer it, they can't charge you for the sample. I can't. And so in effect, it becomes in the marketplace, and eventually many of the varieties that I've gotten do end up in the marketplace that some other seed company will pick up and carry. But my, my object is to keep as many varieties of as many as things accessible to gardeners, and especially gardeners who plan to, to maintain their own stock henceforth, even if it's not particularly rare or endangered. It's just so there'd be a lot of diversity manifest there at any time. And, of course, uh, some, of, some of that, that's, you, the, you mentioned the Noah's Ark phenomenon, um, um, is some of these may survive the current genetic crises that we're facing right now, that our whole civilization is facing. The more of it's out there, the better. I always maintain that the, in the long run, the safest way of maintaining genetic diversity is not in uh, gene banks, um, but basically is in the horticultural landscape, in the fields and gardens of... Farmers and gardeners all over the country, all over the world, actively used
0: and actively be put on people's tables and being eaten. Right, and because we don't we don't know what's going to happen, right we 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 don't have any models for predicting what the earth is going to be like, what kind of pests are going to migrate where, yeah. um, you know. So the the only thing that we have that could possibly save us is having enough options that something might work.
1: That's right. We have a lot of, lot, of, lot of things up our sleeve. We need to have a lot of possibilities. And that's the trick with not knowing which ones of them are going to be relevant. That's why I'm trying to keep as many, I'm like a juggler, trying to keep as many balls in the air as I can without letting any of them fall on the floor, because we don't know which ones. There may be something which is kind of mediocre today, is not as special, which may have within its genes some resistance to some, let's say, a fungal or a virus disease, which is just evolving, which 10 years from now may be decimating all of our crops, may be very... Uh, critical, maybe like another Irish potato famine, and this variety, which hitherto was sort of a, you know just ho hum, another thing, might become either of itself, or it may have within it the genes that we can develop other varieties which are, are have some resilience to them.
0: Great. So, in uh, sort of sort of wrapping up, you, you raise so many issues. And a lot of them, as you say, are, are sort of political. We need to change our entire civilization. We need to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels and find a sustainable energy source. We need sustainable forms of economics. And that's you know sort of the work of, of, of political and social engagement. But there's also the very, very personal work that you and I do and many people do in, on their own land, what do you recommend if, if someone just sort of comes to you and, and they're suddenly aware, based on your writing, of the magnitude of the crisis and opportunity in front of us? Do you have any sort of general guidance for folks who are listening to this? Like what's the first thing or one thing or a couple of things they can do to begin to feel powerful, to begin to feel like they can they can make a difference and contribute to a good direction?
1: Well, what I always tell my workers and this, specifically relates the scatterseed project, but it also relates to the, the, everything else we've been talking about in this, in this uh, conversation, is there's two sides, two sides, two ways of looking at this, and you need to simultaneously look at both of them. One is that no matter how much you do, how many seeds you save, however pure you get, whatever, how, whatever you do, whatever you do is not enough. The problem is so huge, so far-reaching, whatever you do is not going to be enough. The other side is that however little you do, it's critical, and you have to do it. So you you're the only one that can decide with your life, with your resources, with your time, with your money, whatever, which of these things you're going to buy into. But it's critical to to pick that one or as many as you can of them, and and do them. So the fact that you can't solve save the world is not an excuse for sitting back and saying, "Well, I can't do anything. I must well have another beer."
0: Okay, great. So for for folks who can grow gardens. Um, and they they 'll get you know will get your book and they will learn how to use uh, ramial chips and leaves and and uh mowing you know grass clippings and all that and and become far more sustainable for for those people who aren 't going to be able to do that is do you have any advice about how to uh, how to have an effect with your pocketbook, so if you know if you're still if you 're buying from your local farm stand, well they 're still exporting fertility like are there are there better things to do than others in terms of procuring your food to yeah, to, to very, be a positive influence very
1: much first of all, if you're talking about your own little garden, your own little backyard in the middle of the city garden, uh, one is to squeeze more out of it by learning to do things more intensively, um, perhaps we have to live in a real world where we have money or don 't have it. And uh, so if you're, I wouldn't think too seriously about trying to grow your own wheat in your little postage stamp garden. You can buy a lot of organic wheat pretty cheaply. You might focus on the things that you're also going to buy, and which cost a lot more, like tomatoes and so forth, carrots and, and whatever. If you're not gardening at all and have no option for gardening at all, then you're buying all your food. There's a huge control you have over that. Keep in mind that basically every year or every four years or whatever, you get to vote at the polls, and sometimes it doesn't feel like it makes any difference anyone's paying attention. Every day, when you stand at the checkout counter, you get to vote, and believe me, someone is listening. So the choices that you make in the marketplace, what foods you get, know your farmer. Don't just go to the Safeway or IGA or whatever and get the something off the shelves. Go to take the effort it takes to find out who in your area is producing this, or where you can buy it organically, where you can buy it locally grown. Just. Do do some research. This don't don't assume everything has to be perfect. Find something that's better than something else, and go with that as much as you can afford right.
0: to. Right, and so you know, I live in an area where there's a lot of farm to table, and there's a, there's kind of a renaissance. Most of the people here are are devotees of Polyface Farm and Joel Salatin, who's you know very much in the the permaculture. Use all the animals, and you know, for 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 vegans, plant based people. You know, what do you think about buying your produce from a local farm that has a, a sort of animal-based permaculture ethic to it, but they also sell vegetables? Is that better than Safeway and IGA?
1: Well, but quite, yeah, quite probably. I mean, it's hard to know sometimes how do we weigh uh, something, which is uh, uh, like the things that grow joes, which are focused a lot on poultry and so on. Um, they have that downside to them from your and my point of view. Um, of course, he would see it as a plus. But on the other hand, at its worst, is that perhaps better than something from the IGA and Safeway? In some cases, perhaps not. It may be something they may, maybe the swap off is too great. Uh, again, the best way you can know that is by asking questions. And um, uh, Joel will probably give you a lot of answers if you go to the IGA and Safeway or whatever. They probably won't give you a lot of answers. They probably don't have the answers. They've never asked those, been asked those questions before. So, yeah, look around. I mean, shopping It puts a whole new different, uh, different meaning to shopping. Uh, finding out what's available and deciding in your own head which you've you got to balance these things uh, try to do, not only try to do the best you can but try to do the least harm you can do
0: Great, so I, th- I think of paleo as sort of a gateway drug to a healthy plant-based diet it's sort of a halfway house and, uh, and so maybe this um, animal-based permaculture is a halfway house to truly eco-efficient, sustainable farming and gardening
1: I would thoroughly agree with that, that's one place where Joe um, Joel Sullivan and I would be on the exact same side, arm, and arm is, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's on the way. Uh, we would mainly disagree in thinking that it's an ideal.
0: Right. So if people want to find out more about you and follow you, where, is there an, do you have an online presence, or how can, how can I, people I don't, have my own, I don't have
1: my own website. I'm told that I'm on lots of other people's websites. Um, I'm very free. I'm very promiscuous with my uh, email. Um, so, if anyone has particular questions or something they want to ask me, uh, they can write at wabonsall.com at gmail.com, and okay. whenever I do this, I always get swamped with uh, people, so you may not get a quick response, but if you have some serious thing you want to share or ask, I do the best I can to help people in that respect.
0: Great. And so what, one of my fantasies was to, like, put my life on hold for three months and come and be an intern and learn how to do all the things that you talk about. Do you, have, uh, do, you do teaching and kind of hands-on sharing of, of your your well, own so wisdom?
1: Yeah, for the last few years, I've been, we used to have apprentices all the time. The last year years, we haven't been able to do so. I'm hoping perhaps next, next summer we may start again. I'm, I want to get back to having one or more apprentices. I've got to get the bunkhouse repaired. It's about falling off from its foundations and so forth. But uh, those are opportunities for people who want to uh, learn things. I also do, for particularly anyone in the Northeast or in New England who's wanting to uh, attend the, um, one of the finest educational and, and, and um, amusement events you can find anywhere, the Common Ground Fair. In, uh, in Unity, Maine, the uh, Maine Organic Farm and Gardening Association puts on every, I think it's the third, so usually around the summer solstice. Um, I mean, uh, the equinox. I mean, it's September, the third weekend of September. Um, and um, you can find it online. And I'm there all three days of the fair in the agricultural demonstration area giving nonstop talks, if you can imagine. And uh, so mm-hmm. I- I'm there. So, yeah, those are all opportunities that uh, people can um learn
0: great and uh, again i'll repeat the name of the book when, will bonsall's essential guide to radical self-reliant gardening i understand why you wouldn't be crazy about the title cuz i wouldn't be either but i have to admit that it was the title that got me to buy it so there was uh something in the mar- the marketing department knew me <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they, they that, that that was sort of the the bribe that got me into this world. That is, has that you know, opened my eyes to so much more than my own garden, but to uh, really how we can bring about a, a a more just, peaceful, verdant, sustainable, happy world. So
1: I think they were assuming um, that Will Bonsal is household name. They're just having that there itself would sell it, and they're doing everything they can to make that the case. Um, but I think it was very much of an exaggeration. And in case you missed it in the title, then down in the corner, this is the author, you know, by Will Bonsall. And in case you missed that, look on The Binding It's by Will Bonsall. If this book were all about Will Bonsall, that would be the perfect title. But uh, Uh, hopefully a lot more in it than that.
0: Right. Well, you're a household name in my household. (laughs) So, uh, Will Bonsall, thank you so much for all the work you do and for taking the time to share with us today.
1: Thank you. It's been great joining you, Howard and everyone.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us spread the word. And for more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes, today's episode, with links to everything we talked about, including that four-minute-ish video on Scatterseed and also an almost three-hour video workshop of Radical Self-Reliant Gardening, which was hosted by my friend and two-time podcast guest Amy Hamlin of the Coalition for Healthy School Food. That's all at plantyourself.com slash 224. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 223 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter, you can sign up and also get the Stop Early Self-Sabotage Report Let me try that one again and get the stop early stage self-sabotage report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. If you'd like to support the podcast and have more time in typing chops than money, consider adopting an episode to transcribe, which will allow us to spread our advocacy to the deaf and hearing impaired and also to provide a convenient format to everyone to consume the content. Big thanks to the podcast patrons. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Diss, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathalie, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kelly, Lisa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, John Planovsky, David Bizek, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, oh, I meant to say the mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Roland Stu Dolnik, Sarah Durkas, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne and Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Olesert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov. Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val, Lineman Rimes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Halmus, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmed, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Lafferty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovac, Adam Sharp, Helen Burry, rhymes with Burry. Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzall, Nigel Davies, and Marion Blum, which rhymes with Plum, for your generous support of the podcast, and of course, that beautiful song you hear at the beginning and end of every episode, Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, is provided by Will Ridenour, and you can find his music at willridenour.com. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email. You can write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite shows, and you can become a patron of the Plant Yourself podcast with an ongoing contribution. Go to plantyourself.com, go to the right sidebar, scroll down a bit and click the Patreon link, or you can just go to straight to patreon.com plantyourself As I'm recording this, we're at $370 a month. My first goal is to get to $1,000, and we're getting there. We're getting there, folks, and it's making me really confident and hopeful that this thing can turn into something much bigger that I'm not putting all of my resources into, but really it'll be a community effort to help it grow and spread the word. Garden news, running news, no idea, since I'm recording this uh, a week before it airs. So that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.